I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, Technical Interviews with Prominent Women in Tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. That's wit.fm. Technology is used across many different industries. This is one of the reasons why there are many opportunities for people working in tech. One of these areas is sales. Mary Williamson, Vice President of Azure Apps and Infrastructure at Microsoft, gives an overview of careers in sales within the tech industry. We talked about the advantage of having a technical background when working in technical sales. Mary also explained what a transition path looks like from engineering to sales. At the end, we talked about leadership and career growth. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast I launched. It's called The 5-Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you'll hear advice from prominent engineers, artists, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching 5-Minute Mentor. Thank you. Mary Williamson, Vice President of Azure Apps and Infrastructure and Worldwide Commercial Business at Microsoft is joining us today. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. In a blog post that you wrote, you give your thoughts on why technical women should consider careers in sales. So I wanted to ask you a bit about this. Can you explain first what sales consists of within the tech industry or what this can look like? Sure. Yeah, it's something actually I think is a topic, especially for development, that's been undercovered, at least my career in technology. And part of that, I think, is the transition of the role technology is playing in, in all enterprise companies on the planet these days. Sales typically has been a series of steps As you go into a customer, you're building relationships, understanding their business problems, understanding how your set of services or products meets their needs. And then I think traditionally in the past, a lot of the structure of the sales conversation was set up so that decisions were made around the business cases and the business terms and the service terms where the technology played a second seat. It was more the execution, almost the back end of the sales function. And so a lot of energy went into driving a lot of strength in our sales pipeline leadership and sellers in our sales organization. And I'm selling this, saying this as a global we in the industry level. In the last five plus years, but not that long, I think this is really turning a tide where you see a lot more depth and, and requirements in sales organizations coming in earlier with technical capability, with really deeply technical individuals in sales out in the different countries and different regions that are ready to speak to not just a product, but how that product meets the customer's business needs and envisions a whole new way of solving that customer's problems, whether it be an internal problem or an opportunity to reach their customers differently. And so over time, we're seeing this wave of, I think, two things happening. One is sellers who traditionally had been more business-centric in their skills are getting more technically proficient by nature of their industry. And on the other side, there's a large demand forming for people who probably would have followed a more traditional engineering career, software engineering, hardware engineering, data science engineering, going into sales. And the value of that, I think, is, is really big for 
are, um, in particular for women in tech and other underrepresented minorities, because there is a very large demand, and two, an opportunity to set and break new ground in the way the skills that you bring from problem solving with a technology point of view is married with customer value. And I think it's a great way to start and even advance your career to have those types of experience, whether you want to go back into a more traditional engineering or product role, whether you want to become more of a, a business leader, that the value in, in going into sales and career paths is just uh, moves you into a whole new dynamic of the way you can take your career forward from there. In your opinion, what does a transition path look like for a software engineer or somebody that's currently in a technical role and they want to pivot to a role in sales? I think the, the way to do that inside a company like Microsoft is really, like many things, build a network, start having conversations with partners inside of your organization that are customer facing today. I think most engineering teams have some level of customer facing either troubleshooting or debugging or tiger teaming. That's very, very close to customers. And that's one group of people that's, that's good to interview and understand what's their role because they're not necessarily sales, but they're working very closely with the sales organization and they can help delineate what's the difference between the two as they're on that kind of bleeding edge. The second is working with the different functions and learning and getting a guidepost in the sales organization at Microsoft because there's different, there's like everything else at Every big company, there's the three-letter acronyms to wade through. You know, who are the technical sellers? What is a day in the life of that technical seller look like? On the spectrum of technical selling, what is their role? So, for example, understanding that there are sellers that are there to really win the technical design, and then there are sellers there that are, um, in Azure in particular, that are there to work with the customer as they build out their architecture and onboard to Azure and then can start consuming. So there's almost a, a life cycle of sales that you can learn about and then enter into. And part of this is just putting the time in to understanding our own organization and how it works and finding those allies that'll give you time and a basis of understanding where to start. And this could be analogous in other software companies, right? Maybe not at the same scale at Microsoft, but there's likely somebody that's speaking to customers and partners for their particular product. Absolutely. I think even if you're talking about, in particular, if you're talking about, you know, startup size company, sub 100, the ability, I think even more so there, if you're a traditional software engineer, you're going to be talking to customers more often, really working with specific customer problems, feature requests, and really understanding that customer and partnering in the room with your seller to make sure that that sales is successful. In a company like Microsoft, I think we all are serving the needs of our customers, but there's almost the, the onions to peel back. How close can you get to that customer? Which layer are you in and um, how can you get closer? And really also um, understanding how can you build maybe a multi-step career path where you're getting closer and closer to that customer, where maybe sales is a second step or a third step in your development versus a first step. And that might be something more interesting to people who are exploring, do I really want to be a seller that is um, working in a capacity that's very focused on solving near you know, bleeding on fire problems versus necessarily long-term code development and kind of a, a higher purpose product. So in sales, you're really less implementing changes in a product. You're more about taking that product and portfolio products and applying it on a daily basis to that customer. So it's 
is kind of the end of the product life cycle and you're living at that that very end, which is amazing opportunity to to get those to use your technology prowess to make the sale, but you are further away from defining the changes and uh, building those changes into that same product that you might be passionate about. So we're talking about what a path can look like for somebody coming into a technical background, going into sales. And one of the highlights you mentioned is building a network, having conversations with people that are in those roles or that are closer to customers and partners. Do you also recommend like people seek out some sort of sales training or, you know, degree in this? No, I don't think there's a, I would say the energy as you're exploring sales and how to enter sales is, I think, first and foremost, defining what you want to, how you want to enter. Are you excited to enter today? I want to join a sales organization that's customer facing, doing this maybe in a specific area of the portfolio. I love what I'm doing in data platform. I'd like to go find a way to be a seller in data platform. I would spend my energy in really navigating the different, again, three-letter acronyms, the the STUs and the GBBs and the CSEs and the CAT teams and all these places that are part of the, the technical sales engine of the company. After you find a path that starts making sense, then I would put time into what kind of hard skill and soft skill training will make me successful. I think sales training is important for all sellers. And part of my team's charter is to look at the the kind of continuous learning curve that we want to provide and support for our worldwide sellers. But I don't think it's a barrier to making that leap. In fact, I, I, I think most, and my bias is coming from a technical background, that the challenges are necessarily the familiarity with a product point in time. It's really, do you have a technology seller that can stay fresh in the technologies that are coming from the portfolio, stay fresh and how those are being implemented than a specific you know, uh, certification on a technology coming from engineering to sales. I want to talk next about your current role at Microsoft and the organization you work at, because I feel the scale at which Microsoft operates is very interesting. And then those learnings, some of them making them their way to, to smaller companies. And Specifically, you're in the worldwide commercial business division at Microsoft. Can you talk about what this division is about? Sure. Yeah. As I'm new, I'm asking the same questions as I enter. And it's been, I think the worldwide commercial business is, is one that takes a bit of navigating a little bit of history to understand where we are in the world. So the worldwide commercial business is an arm and part of the sales organization. We are complementary or to what's called GSMO the global sales and marketing organization, which are really the, the the sellers and the operational and the business desk folks that are tightly, tightly connected to our customers. WCB has many functions that support our global sales organization kind of horizontally. And I think that it's a great way of making sure that we have these horizontal complements looking across areas versus you know one area at a time, the US versus Germany versus China. We really want to look across the world and say, what are the strategies, programs, sales operational models that are really going to forward our respective businesses? What are the skilling capabilities and learning capabilities that we need across the world? How are we making sure that we're servicing Microsoft customers in a really high quality way across the world? And in my part of the organization, we're looking at solutions. And so I lead the apps and infra team. My peer Priya leads the data and AI team. My peer Hayden leads modern workplace and Hyatt with business applications. The group of us really looks at how are we taking this 
set of amazing products, technologies, and clouds and pointing them at the sales organization, at the sellers in a way that can be, be connected as a solution set. And I think part of this is the journey that we're on in Microsoft to make sure that we're bringing that full solution to those customers. We also complement an investment we're making in another part of um, worldwide commercial business and industry alignment. And as we look at how our customers show up and we want to show up to those customers with a position and a strong point of view that this is the type of solution that works if you're a manufacturer. And we have repeatable themes and capabilities and ways of helping their business by vertical. And so there's this evolution of the way we want to make sure that we're enabling our sellers to bring really that full picture to the customers in, maybe, in a different way that we have in the past. And uh, you know, part of that also so is uh, part and parcel to the sh- shift towards m- much of our business going to cloud, much of our business going to a consumption model. And so one thing I should also mention is this organization, I think of in particular my team, sits between the sales organization and the marketing and product groups, making sure that we're kind of doing that right-hand, left-hand alignment, that um, sellers are getting what they need and and quickly getting feedback into our uh, marketing and product arms on what's working, what challenges they're seeing, so that we can agilely adjust and help them with better programs, better marketing collateral with better product alignment, and also keep an ear towards competition. So it sounds like there's a close collaboration between people and sales, marketing, and product teams. There is. And I think one of the charters that I have in and my uh, leadership team, uh, as well as Corey Sanders, who came into this role about nine months ago, is really building closer bridges between all these organizations and being able to, I'll say, work at the speed of cloud because things change uh, so quickly in the industry. Things change in our partner environment. Things change on the technology side. So we want to make sure that those bridges are really you know, short bridges and very well-versed teams that can connect quickly because part of the challenge in a large company like Microsoft, obviously, is finding the people who can help solve your problems in an efficient uh, and timely way. In your opinion, what have been some of the unique aspects of the vice president role at a big company? Unique aspects. Let me try to maybe separate the two. So I think on one, what's the vice president role feel like in Microsoft. I think that there's a really, in particular, the culture plays a big part in how I define my role. And really, in the sense of being a VP in the worldwide commercial business, it's how do me and my peers relate to each other in being agents of change, being agents of collaboration. How are we learning from each other where parts of our business have existed and are really have been acting as mature organizations for a long time? How can we borrow from those to advance and mature our new businesses? How, on the flip side, how do these new businesses and the speed of those businesses and the cloud capabilities that are inherent in those businesses affect some of our traditional businesses? And so I see a lot of our role as a team looking across those types of questions and really a strong sense of shared ownership and uh, shared responsibility to make those things visible and make them decrease any kind of formality or process to get those questions in front of us and really get teams working on them quickly. I think it's unique at Microsoft in that me and my peers, as I look across the company, are shared owners of our success. We share at the highest levels our KPIs. We don't have separate KPIs. And I think, again, that's really a, a nod to a, a culture that is collaborative and building together 
these like almost just massive, massive uh, teams with a single purpose in mind and, and a single way of measuring our success. So it's really easy to have conversations with teams, with folks that might be two or three steps removed from my, my day-to-day job because they share in the success of making Azure and ACR and all of this business successful. And just to clarify, by share KPI, you mean key performance indicators? Yes, I think it's unique to Microsoft. And I wouldn't say this would be the same answer in prior roles and and prior companies I've been with, is that typically you come in as a vice president and say, here's my business end to end, I own it. Here's my key performance indicators and my quote unquote part of the business. And then my peers would have different versions of that. and, um, And somewhere at a higher level, the portfolio rolls up and then eventually the whole business rolls up. And I think what's different about Microsoft is that we all share in the success in a much larger umbrella of, in my case, Azure. But even in Azure, I do have ties into the Dynamics Cloud and the Office Cloud because there are sales motions out there that that are starting to complement each other. So even if you look under the big umbrella of Azure, it's Scott Guthrie and his engineering organization. It's Takeshi and Juliet White and his marketing organization. It's different parts of Judson Altop's organization that are required to make Azure successful, whether it's partner, whether it's the verticals uh, organization, whether it's looking at my team that's part of Apps and Infra or Priya's team that's Data and AI, we're all collaborating in that leadership level to make sure that we are meeting our business goals for Azure's revenue by the end of, you know, within the fiscal year and beyond. I want to talk a bit more about leadership and moving up the ladder because I saw You've moved from manager to director to general manager, now vice president. From that experience, looking back, what were some of the things that changed as you kept moving up the leadership ladder? I think there are two big changes. Even though there's multiple steps, it feels like there's maybe two big leaps within that. I think the first that if you're if you're thinking about going from individual contributor to first line manager, that is a your first big change in the way you approach how you do work and how you spend your time. And a lot of people, I think, struggle and need it's probably the area where you need the most coaching for that part of your career. Because I think all of us who are high performers, who we really want to be a manager as a way to take on more leadership and more responsibility, do what we've done best up until then. And if you're an an amazing high performer and an execution engine or strategic thinker or salesperson, whatever you are, when you become a manager, you're now ceding that to the people in your organization. They need to be the exceptional performers and you need to be the one coaching them. And coaching is a different kind of energy and it's a different kind of skill set. It goes, it's kind of when you graduate from being the player on the field or the player in, you know, the basketball court to being the coach. And it takes, it's a different set of how you spend your time, how you are giving each person in your organization individualized coaching. It's acknowledging and having kind of that moment with yourself that people can do things different ways than you would and they can still be successful. <laughs> and also that, you know, your bar for success and your maybe rigor is a different than, than other people's and how do you manage that? So I think that is a really challenging step and one that I really can't underscore that it's very filling moving from IC to manager, but it also isn't, I fear sometimes people think it's, it is that just 
next level of high-performance individual contribution. It really, really isn't. It's a really a shift-right model. And I think the second level of responsibility, as you get from kind of an M1 to an M2, M2 to M1, whatever is similar to me in that you're now thinking about leading leaders. And leading leaders, again, is a very different level of how you spend your time, energy, and what does your leadership team need from you, different than you would have spending time in individuals that were your M1s. And that, again, is time as as a leader you need to spend thinking, growing, engaging, coaching, training, reading books, having a different set of mentors yourself so you can be a great leader of leaders. And so those are the two things I think about in my career of, you know, it's easy to look backwards and go, I did that well. I think I learned through it and had some good mentors along the way that helped me learn through it. But looking backwards, I wish that someone would almost put like a a stop sign and say, at this point, you should be doing these things. And, you know, and at the next point, you should be doing these things. I think it happens a little bit more organically. And also uh, part of that is it has to be authentic of what you're ready for and what you're interested in exploring for yourself. Because sometimes taking those, uh, being a manager of managers is a very different conversation with your leadership inside of your organization. And how do you know you're ready? How do you know what their expectations are? Isn't just, I was a good M1. Just kind of like, you're a good M- IC doesn't mean you'll be a good manager. So spending that time in that sounding board, again, inside of your own time and your own aspirations is, is important. You mentioned coaching, and I assume that you received coaching throughout your transitions. Is that right? I did, in part. I think one of the most amazing parts of my career was probably three quarters of my career, I didn't, I didn't interview for a job. Uh, these jobs were coming to me from mentors and sponsors in my management chain, and I was always super humbled by those opportunities, but I was, in every single case when I look back, really freaked out, to be quite honest, because they'd come and say, hey, we have this new role, we think you'd be perfect for it, you're starting on Monday, you know, it was almost this, you know, ask without uh, ability to say no, and there were jobs that were super stretched, you know, it's part of it, maybe a quarter of it felt comfortable, but the rest was brand new in either And many times they were in an area of the business I wasn't familiar with. They were adding to my breadth of management skills where maybe I was taking on a larger team or a team that was international or a team that needed to be rebuilt. So I tended to have people speaking my name in the room without, you know, on my behalf for a lot of my career. I think that was part, you know, I wasn't a passive person in that process. I was actively keeping my mentors and my sponsors informed of my long-term aspirations to grow. So it wasn't me being shocked, but it was um, many of those were unexpected, not visible to me before they came across my radar. And looking back, would you say that's in part because, you know, at the beginning, you're working really well, you have a really good work ethic, delivering that, like you said, people were just speaking about you. And then the good opportunities come your way even without you actively like seeking some jobs portal or something? Yeah, I think it always starts with do excellent work, have an impact, understand what your organization values, and make sure you're not working long hours, but not having an impact. All of those things are part and parcel to getting on to really building that trust and building that credibility to start building then the mentors and sponsors who will help you navigate your career. But I also think you have to spend the time. Similar in this kind of an early career nod, when I coached people early in my career back going to colleges that 
I was getting frustrated because resumes were coming out really, really poor quality, lots of errors, spelling errors. They didn't make sense. And I said, you all are spending four or five years in college to get a job, and you're spending half an hour on your resume. And this is opening the door for the thing that you work for. Spend time on yourself. And I would say the same thing applies for people I coach in, inside of the companies I've, I've been in, is that we don't spend enough time on ourselves in saying, here is what I value, and here's what I see myself doing in my life, inside work, outside work. This is what's making me happy today. This is what I'm challenged with. This is what I absolutely won't do because it goes outside of the things that make me satisfied or, or feel welcome or feel safe or all of those things. Really writing that down and having that picture of what you're aspiring to go do helps you have those coaching conversations and mentoring conversations so that people know who you are, what you aspire to go do, what drives you. And then you put the energy in there on a regular basis. Then those organic, quote unquote, invisible roles become more, uh, I think, natural because you have people thinking about you as organizations shift, as programs get started, as other people are leaving their roles and, and moving on to their next great thing. And it gives you, I think, a lot more dynamic opportunity to grow your career than sitting and watching for a job board, because that's typically not the, the best way of finding a long-term. I think there's probably good opportunities, and I wouldn't say that's not, that's something to ignore. But I think over the course of your career, putting the investment in that group of mentors and sponsors is really going to get you the most bang for your buck. The last question I want to ask you is, earlier you mentioned reading books also helped you throughout your transitions in leadership roles. Are there any particular types of books that you found useful? I'm in love with First 90 Days. It's been recommended to me multiple times throughout my career when I was making changes. I've recommended it many times. And I think that would be the big one I'd recommend to anybody who's making any change inside a company, outside a company, because it helps you just take time to think about how do I show up next? How do I show up different when I'm going from level you know, X to level Y or company A to company B? And it just gives you that space to say, okay, I'm mentally prepared to go in and be thoughtful about who I am as a manager with this new title, as a director with this new capability, as a salesperson. I've never been a salesperson before. And so I think that's the one that jumps to mind. Well, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.